Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, I'm joined by Kevin R.C. Gutzman. Kevin is a New York Times bestselling author of five books, including Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, A Radical Struggle to Remake America. He's a professor and former chairman of the Department of History at Western Connecticut State University also a faculty member at LibertyClassroom.com, and holds a number of advanced degrees, including a law degree from the University of Texas at Austin and a Ph.D. in American history from the University of Virginia. Kevin, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Tom. Now, for all the listeners that are new for Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, I want to direct you to episode one, the very first episode when I had uh, the privilege of having Kevin Gutzman on to really talk about this vaccine mandate issue from a wider perspective. Number one, how does an executive branch agency get the right to make rules? Why isn't that legislating? And why isn't that reserved for the Congress per the Constitution? So we went over that. And the answer is it shouldn't be. You can go back to episode one and find out how we got there. And the second question was how is this interstate commerce? You go to work, you come home, nobody's crossed the state line. How could workplace safety be interstate commerce? We covered all that in that first episode. If you have time, please go and listen to that one. So it'll give you great context for this episode where we're going to talk about the decision that came from the Supreme Court, which was just a stay on the vaccine mandates while they're still being disputed in other venues. And Kevin, I got a bunch of questions for you about this, but maybe first off, maybe you could just give us your initial thoughts on what the Supreme Court did here. I thought what they did was unsurprising. They said in the one case involving more or less 100 million people that OSHA's writ only ran to work conditions and COVID not being specifically a work condition didn't fall under that rubric. So they ruled against the Biden administration in that case. Then the other case is the one that's about people who were employed by agencies that are getting funding through federal programs. And they said that 
in this instance, as in many others, the federal government can attach strings to its various sources of funding. So they allowed that. But of course, these matters are still being litigated. It's not that either one was the end of the story. It's that this will be the interim situation and final decision awaits first a circuit court of appeals, different ones in the two cases, and then probably more hearing in the Supreme Court. It's not clear that the Supreme Court will think it needs to take these cases because I'm suspicious that the outcomes will be the same as what they've ruled preliminarily, but that's where we stand now. So basically, for everyone who isn't following where it is, they're being argued in lower courts or other courts. Right, circuit courts of appeal. So the, the federal system has three levels. Of course, there's a Supreme Court. Beneath those, the intermediate level are called circuit courts of appeal. And there are, what, 14 of those different parts of the country. And then, of course, the trial courts are called federal district courts. So these cases both came to the Supreme Court from different circuit courts of appeal, and the court issued its preliminary temporary rulings in both cases and then sent them back to the circuit courts of appeal. So we'll see where they go from there. And is there any possibility that they could get a different decision in any of those courts and it goes back to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says something different than they did on just ruling on the stay? Oh, yeah, there are examples of basically every kind of permutation of combination of court rulings in federal litigation history. Sure, you could have any of the conceivable outcomes still, but I think that in each of these two cases, the rulings were more or less what I anticipated. And it seems to me that it's going to be very hard to change either one of them if you're the party that would like to do that, to get the lower court to say, we'd think the Supreme Court missed some of the facts here. For some reason, we're going to come to a different final conclusion here than they gave us preliminarily in the Supreme Court. And even if they did, it's unlikely that the Supreme Court would reach a different final decision if it had to look at either of these again. So I do think this is going to be where this ends up, that the Biden administration can't, through OSHA, issue a mandate to 100 million people that they all get vaccinated, that just seems far-fetched. And on the other hand, the other case seemed rightly decided to me too. Don't claim any special insight in this regard. They both seem pretty obvious. So going back to episode one, I'll just make one more reference to it. I just remember that when I asked you a question, I said, well, if you say that Congress can delegate a certain amount of rulemaking to this agency, and they can tell you that you have to wear a hard hat on the work site because it's a safety issue. Why can't they tell you you have to get a vaccine? And it seemed like when reading the decision, at least from my perspective, they did have one bit of reasoning to distinguish. And that was, this is not the example they used, but they said, well, you could take the hard hat off at the end of the day when you go home. You can't take the vaccine off. In other words, that's something that goes beyond the workplace. But I thought right. in the dissent when they said, yeah, but we're allowing you to have a test instead of the vaccine, and you really shouldn't even call this a, a mandate. That seems somewhat compelling to me. What's wrong with that? 
It still has to do with, as the majority said, a factor that's not related to the workplace. OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Getting COVID is not occupational. It's just something that's in the air in the United States. My understanding of the majority's position is that doesn't think that this agency should be able to bring in aspects of American life that really aren't related to the work environment. But if I go to work and people give me a disease, that's a disease I caught in the workplace. That's where Sotomayor and the dissenters are coming from. But you can see how that kind of reasoning would lead to OSHA being able to issue orders about any aspect of life. So don't get pregnant. It might be unsafe in the workplace. Or improve your fluency in English because it might make people safer in the workplace. Or basically anything could be brought under OSHA's umbrella if that were the way that the judges or the administrative agency were allowed to reason. I think the first question has to be, well, what are the contours of OSHA's authority? And the majority, I think, rightly said OSHA's writ runs to matters that are about the workplace. And whether you have COVID might affect the workplace, but it's not a work condition. Just as being perfectly fluent in English or not being pregnant are, are things that might affect people who are working with you, but they're not about the workplace. So OSHA can't regulate those. It can't order people to go learn English better or forego becoming pregnant. You can't do that. Interesting. So I think we should also say what jumps out at somebody like me who doesn't read a lot of these or hasn't read a lot of them in the past is Good that the issue of constitutionality really is not what's at issue here. People think, oh, it goes to the Supreme Court. They decide if it's constitutional. But as you said in episode one, whether it's constitutional for OSHA to do what it does, that boat sailed 80 years ago, it docked, it was decommissioned, scrapped, whatever. Take the metaphor as far as you want to go. They're really just arguing, is this regulation that's written by OSHA within the statutory mandate from Congress? In other words, does it obey the law, not whether the law is constitutional? Correct. Yes, that is right. Yeah. So there was no threat to OSHA's existence in either one of these cases, nor will there be. <laughs> right. There, I bring it up because I noticed in the Gorsuch section. So I was wondering how a guy like him would handle something like this. And he brings up the non-delegation doctrine. Yeah. That one is an oldie and goodie, and it's got some friends on the Supreme Court now. So people may have heard me say in times past that We've had essentially a left-wing majority on the Supreme Court since 1937, and that changed during the Trump administration. And what difference will that make? One thing is people are going to be talking about the non-delegation doctrine, which has been gone since the 1930s at the latest. And what the non-delegation doctrine is about is the question whether Congress can delegate its constitutional function to other people. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Supreme Court, other federal courts, legal authorities, prominent law professors said, of course not. The, the Constitution begins Article 1, Section 1, the legislative authority will be in the Congress of the United States. So rulemaking was understood to be an elected official, and this is a definition of modern republicanism. But when the New Deal came along and Franklin Roosevelt's majorities in Congress decided they wanted to empower him to staff new administrative agencies to issue these kinds of regulations, they basically initiated a now a longstanding tradition of just ignoring the non-delegation doctrine. So Article 1, Section 1 has a little 
uh, asterisk effectively saying, unless Congress shall create administrative agencies, then they can legislate. And Gorsuch doesn't like this idea. It doesn't mean they're going to scrap long-lived administrative agencies, but it means they're going to look more uh, more unpersuadedly upon the attempts to create new ones, and they're going to be unhappy with any uh, inclination to extend an administrative agency's authority into new areas. So that's what was going on in this case about the 100 million people was the possibility that we'd have a new kind of order from OSHA that really, again, didn't have to do with the workplace at all. So it's a happy noise he's making, and he's not the only one. Uh, Justice Thomas doesn't like the fact that the non-delegation doctrine is now ignored either. Alito probably doesn't. I can't recall at the moment, but he didn't specifically bring it up, but that doesn't mean that the part that Gorsuch wrote didn't have his full endorsement. Let's take a short break for this important message. Most people consider it a fact of life that prices are going to go up over time, and they've never gone up as fast as they are right now. But what if I told you it wasn't always like that? that for over 100 years, prices went down in America even as the economy became more productive. Well, it's true. And as much as we like to blame the president when the economy is bad, presidents really have very little effect on our modern economy. The real culprit behind not only price inflation, but the constant booms and busts we suffer is the Federal Reserve System. My new book, It's the Fed, Stupid!, is an appeal to Americans across the political spectrum to stop focusing on things that don't make a difference and start focusing on what does. Whether you're worried about constantly rising prices, wage stagnation, increasing wealth and income inequality, or the massive expansion of the government's size and power, they can all be traced back to an institution the powerful would prefer you ignored. Download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com and find out what you should really be fighting against. And now, back to our episode. You work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical. So everything you just said is great news. I agree with everything. For all I know, Gorsuch agrees with everything you just said. But isn't it like a satire for him to bring up the non-delegation doctrine and then say this rule that OSHA wrote is okay and this one is not? And is it a matter that's, look, this is what I can do at this point? It is. The best metaphor for these kinds of things is that the federal government and constitutional law edifice are two big battleships, and it's going to take a long time to turn them, right? But left wing had 80 plus years of control of the court, and it completely remade constitutional law. One way was it allowed creation of administrative agencies. People who hear this term and don't know what I'm saying should understand administrative agency has legislative, executive, and judicial authority. And you might hear that and think, well, that's unconstitutional. And the answer is, well, yes. <laughs> but the New Deal decided, the New Deal judges and the New Deal Congresses and New Deal presidents decided, well, we're going to have this anyway. And so what we're talking about is Justice Gorsuch is using this expression, non-delegation doctrine, which harkens back to a time when laws were made by Congress and no one else. 
at least federal laws. And that would certainly be preferable as far as I'm concerned. Do you think that if Supreme Court couldn't just come in on some single case and wipe away the New Deal (laughs) or any of these agencies, by continually citing this and making decisions over time, can they start to rein them in and put tighter and tighter boundaries over what they can do? Yes. And this has to do with the way that lawyers are educated in the United States, right? They're educated by reading judicial opinions for the most part. So if judicial opinions, even dissenting ones or concurring opinions have this kind of talk in them, then neophyte lawyers who formerly would never have even had the idea of this will absorb it in their legal training and it'll be part of their intellectual equipment that they're prepared to apply themselves. So there's going to be a long lead time. If we're going to move in a good direction, it's going to take quite a while, but this is a little glimmer of hope. Well, that's good. (laughs) I was looking for some good news in the big picture because until you spelled that out, I was thinking, okay, so they came up with a good answer on this, but it's not based on anything. But introducing the non-delegation doctrine at least starts to get it in there and starts setting precedents. Well, I can tell you that I graduated from law school in 1990, still in the heyday of the whole New Deal edifice. And the things I read as part of my legal training were all just endorsements of this stuff or taking it completely for granted. And now we're in an age that's totally different. If your nephew or your cousin is starting law school this coming year, she's going to be, or he's going to be reading opinions that are critical of this. They're going to be seeing things that are hearkening back to the way the constitution was actually structured. People may think, well, this is all very theoretical, but it isn't theoretical because what it means is the difference between Having control of the government be more localized and having it be entirely in Washington, D.C. So having it, in other words, be within the ambit in which you and your neighbors and friends can affect what's going on and having it be controlled by armies of uh, unelected and unaccountable people you'll never meet. I think it's utterly preferable to have a decentralized government, especially in so gigantic a country as ours. And this is really what we're talking about here. Gorsuch clearly favors something more like the actual Constitution, not the New Deal precedence edifice, which is what we really live under now. The other thing I noticed, I don't know if this is right because your eye might have caught something mine didn't, was that he cites that New Deal case with the poultry. Yeah, Schechter. Yeah, to support his decision, where basically saying that the agency can't go that far, but nobody cites the actual case that found that the agency could legislate or that it wasn't legislating if it made rules within Congress's dictates. I I just noticed that's not in this decision anywhere, is it? Again, it's taken for granted. You don't have to cite authority to continue down the road we're already on, right? So he knows what he's doing. He, he knows what he's doing. And actually, I don't think he's the best of them either, but this is really good stuff. Actually, the other day I talked to Jeff Deist about these similar questions to these, and I told him, look, his inclination was to think it was just all grim. The whole landscape of the federal judiciary was just rotten, and there's no hope in it, and what in the world can we do? And I walked him back from that. We're There's been progress. This last year, two years ago, however long ago it was that Trump got his final appointment, is the first time since 1937 
We've got a working majority of people who don't approve of all this. They don't approve of the New Deal edifice. They want the actual constitution. They say so. The political situation right now is not a happy one, but the judiciary gives me a little bit of hope. And I'm not one who's prone to go off being hopeful. That's good. Actually, you just cheered me up too, because I thought this would all just be dismal. And I thought this seeming self-contradiction about the non-delegation doctrine was just like, this is foo-foo, but I see where you're coming from. You really need to go at this with a pickaxe. You can't just blow it up. One other thing to notice is a lot of libertarians think pox on both of their houses, Democrats, Republicans, they're indistinguishable. That is mistaken. They are too close together for my taste, but they are different. And one way in which they're different is since Reagan, who made this an aspect of the Republican Party's identity, the Republican Party stands for appointing judges who actually are in favor of the Constitution. They sometimes fail to identify people who are going to pursue that goal when they become judges. But I think they've all tried since Reagan was appointed to give us a change in this connection. And this is really important. It's a nice start. However, it'll need more support through the appointment process. And so if you're a libertarian who thinks neither party's libertarian, just think of this as a reason to vote against Democrats. They want more of the New Deal and worse. And that's not only true when it comes to spending and regulating your life. It's true when it comes to authoritative statements about what the Constitution is going to be understood to mean. I don't think that's just a, a partisan pitch. I think we've all found out the difference between the two parties in the last two years. I don't like everything about the Republican Party, and I've never been, well, I was a Republican for a few months when I thought I could vote for Rand Paul in the Republican primary, but then he dropped out. Yeah, by the time we got to Connecticut, it was down to Kasich, Trump, and Cruz. And I thought Cruz was constitutionally ineligible. That was pretty grim. Right. But there is a difference. And I'll tell you what, I don't think that the governor or the state legislature should be able to outlaw a vaccine passport on private property. But I'd much rather live under that with Ron DeSantis than somewhere where they're mandating you get the vaccine to be able to go to work. So sometimes you got to be practical and say, what's the most freedom you can get? What's the best you're going to do. Yeah, I agree with that. The only guy I agree with all the time is Kevin Gutzman. And sometimes I decide <laughs> he was wrong too. So that can't be a reason for saying I'm not going to make a judgment. And of course, I'm not saying that the Republicans always nominate people who are better than the Democrats. Sometimes too often you just can't vote. But certainly when it comes to the presidency, the parties identified with the idea that we should have the actual constitution. So that is significant. Even if they nominate a Bush, that's something. A conservative at the end of the day does believe in some things that libertarians do, like private property. Right, yes. A liberal or a left-winger, they believe that's fundamentally a problem, private property, and that's a complete departure. So I think that there is some affinity between the two sides. I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you remember this, because it, it just hit me now with the second conversation we've had, and it always goes back to this evil guy with the cigarette holder. Back in 2010, <laughs> we spoke at a Campaign for Liberty event. and In Florida? I think it was in Florida. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You were yeah. there. Brian McClanahan was there. Tom DiLorenzo was there. I, I spoke on something. I think Woods was there. Yeah. I think Woods was the keynote. Maybe Mike Church was there too. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so. 
So we all did our speaking thing, but then they had this panel where they had us all up on a stage. And I actually have a picture of this on my Facebook page, but they were asking us who was the worst president. So of course, our list was completely different than the one you'd read in the New York Times. None of the Probably people, opposite. They would, yeah, the opposite. Yeah. Right? Actually, there's a new book about John Tyler called, it's got a subtitle like America's Traitor President. Right. My favorite. Thing. Yeah, if you get kicked out of your own party, you're probably doing something right. That's well, if you're in the Whig party, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I can't remember what your answer was. Of course, I was on the edge of my seat. What's Tom DiLorenzo's answer going to be? Probably what that was going to be. But I said FDR and I stick by that. It's like this guy did more damage you could say other people open the door, but this guy really just let the horses out of the barn. Yeah, he was awful. There have been a handful of truly awful ones, and he's one. So, yes, I agree. As far as this constitutional law issue goes, we live in FDR's world. By the time he was done, the whole Supreme Court had been remade, and they were all just committed to the idea that the federal Congress and executive could do basically anything they wanted to do. I'm not for this statue thing at all, but if you're going to take one down, let me tell you <laughs> my vote on this one. But listen, last time you were on, I think you told me you had a new book coming out and now you're going to make me wait till December for it. I'm afraid so. I can't help it. Publishers are slow. I know. I founded one, actually. What's the name of it? It's called The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. And it's going to be published by St. Martin's on December 13th. So count the days, fellas. You know when the pre-sale date is? I do not know that. No, I know nothing else. In fact, I haven't even chosen the illustrations yet. The acquisitions editor accepted my manuscript and he told my agent, Kevin's writing is superb as usual, but it's still being cobbled together. The writing is done, but there are other things going on. So not till December. Well, keep me posted. Definitely come back on, if not before, then talk about that book. And I'll link to a Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution and some other stuff of yours on the show notes page. And thanks for giving us your time again. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.